I'm Taylor Keene, founder of Sacred Seed, and this is the Prairie Farm Podcast. A unique characteristic about the home state for Nicholas and I, the state of Iowa, is that we are the only state bookended by the two mightiest rivers here in North America, the Mississippi on our eastern shore. That's actually where I used to live, right there on the in Davenport, right on the, you know, about a mile from uh, the banks of the Mighty Miss. And then now we're over here on the just over the western bookend on the banks of the Missouri River. And uh, what's interesting about that is you've heard Nicholas say this, I guess we could, for lack of a better term, a descriptive st- statistic that is Iowa being the most terraformed place on earth, or at least one of the most terraformed places on earth. It's been totally changed from what nature laid down long ago, right? And that change, the, 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 the big, oh, what do we want to say? The, the big mover here that's brought about all that change, of course, is our species, mankind, right? And you might think of that, you might just think, yeah, I guess so. You know, you got all those cornfields and you got, you know, neighborhoods and cities and, and, and all that. But you probably wouldn't think about uh, those two rivers being so changed, right? But uh, even the rivers, even the things that, that set our boundaries, man has found a way to change, right? And it's easy when we have so much of that change to kind of forget about where we came from, forget about what was once here. And that's exactly what we want to talk about today. And we couldn't think of a better person to talk about just from a, a natural standpoint, from a farming standpoint, land use standpoint, uh, what it means to get back to what was once here, restoring that, right? And so our guest, Mr. Taylor Keene, has really poured his life into that and uh, has, has created this incredible, I mean, I guess we could call it a project, but it's kind of a movement too, really, with sacred seed and preserving uh, what we once had. So, Taylor, thank you so much for coming on the show with us. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, for sure. So uh, let's before we uh, dive into Sacred Seed here, I think it's really important that our audience gets to know Taylor a little bit. You may have heard him in several different places. If you do a Google search on Taylor, you're going to have all kinds of fascinating things that are going to pop up there quickly. Of course, the Sacred Seed website is going to come up. And uh, I believe you're a professor at uh, Creighton. That's correct. And uh, how, how many years have you been teaching? Uh, this fall will be the start of my 15th year. Wow. wow. That's awesome. So a life in education and... Uh, half uh, of a uh, corporate life in uh, education. The previous half was straight corporate work. So Okay. Very cool. Very cool. So uh, what? So I'm guessing that so corporate life, you're teaching in, in business ed, right? Yep. And... Yep. and uh, I, I think I saw on your website, you're a Dartmouth and Harvard grad, right? That's correct. So spent some time out on the East Coast. My- I did, for sure. I studied uh, English and history at Dartmouth. Okay. And uh, was super close to almost getting a job uh, that combined both history and English uh, with the uh, filmmaker Ken Burns for his Whoa, the American wow, project. That, is cool. that would have been so <laughs> cool to see. Uh, unfortunately, I did not get the job. Um, inter- interesting, fun little story. So, um, thoroughly enjoyed you know studying uh, 
English lit and uh, going out east that was not you know where I was from and but the ethos I Mm -hmm. understood at the time and someone gave me some really good advice uh, which was study what you're really passionate about and then Mm -hmm. it's all going to work out okay and so I loved English lit Mm -hmm. and uh, ended up um, being admitted into the the creative writing program there at uh, at Dartmouth's English department and uh, not too long after that got interested in history as well cool. and so so uh, studied both there uh, incidentally uh, one of my colleagues in the uh, creative writing program we actually had the uh, same advisors um, his um, pen name or this his professional name is uh, David Benioff who you might know as uh, executive producer of Game of Thrones and okay. author and Very uh, cool. Longtime uh, fraternity brother of mine as well, <laughs> uh, but the uh, awesome. it, it was the interest on the history side that uh, got me that interesting opportunity with uh, Ken Burns, and uh, I remember writing my senior thesis uh, on the history side of things, and the first draft was not so good. It was on uh, on the history of the um, red power movement uh, in the okay. late 1960s and early 1970s and my first draft did not have any um, first person interviews which is a big no-no mm. in uh, history and I got sure. poo-pooed yep. for it yep. and uh, my my advisor Dr. Green gave me a big uh, tick in the pants and he was the department chair as well very southern cigar smoking <laughs> uh, neat Neat guy. And uh, after he kicked me in the pants, I got fired up and said, okay. And I came back here at Omaha and ended up ended up interviewing um, a number of people who had been uh, directly involved in the American India movement, which was one of the most tangible aspects mm-hmm. out of the Red Power movement. And uh, one thing led to another, and one interview led to another, and by the end he was super excited about it. And I remember uh, upon finishing it, and I got a nice grade for it, he uh, called me into his office to chat about it. And uh, I was very naive and said, this history stuff is great. How do I get a job doing this? And he laughed. And he, I mean, he really laughed. He laughed so hard he almost fell out of his chair. And when he finally stopped, he came back up and said, Taylor, it's called a PhD in history. And then maybe, maybe you'll get a job. Ooh. And uh, I was That's like, a big investment. Okay. <laughs> and I said, well, if anything else changes, let me know. And he laughed some more. And uh, sure enough, you know, a month or two later, he got contacted by, by a young uh, filmmaker who was just getting started and said, hey, I'm you know, looking for writers on the American West. And do you have anyone to recommend? And you would be very interested in having an indigenous perspective, although mm. um, back in that time frame, um, in the late 80s, early 90s, no one used that that term. Mm-hmm. And he put forth my name. And so I submitted my master's thesis, and they loved it. And they uh, had gotten us down. There were two, two finalists, and uh, they asked for a second piece. And instead of 
writing part two to that, I got cocky and submitted creative writing and I did not get the job. So, uh, coming full circle now, of course I had to go out and get a job and that was the, Mm -hmm. uh, the beginning of my corporate career. It was really out of uh, necessity and, uh, did you enjoy that of any sort? Uh, it was hard. It was, it, it was very humbling. I mean, I was studying, uh, the humanities and was surrounded by finance majors and, mm. uh, people with strong histories in manufacturing and operations, uh, or marketing or something. And I right, didn't come right. from one of those disciplines. Mm. Um, but, uh, I went through a management development program at a place called Bath Ironworks up in Bath, Maine. Um, Okay, yeah, I'm familiar built, with that. Build, build ships uh, for the Navy, uh, mm-hmm. long-storied uh, tradition. And uh, I can't say it was uh, enjoyable, but I learned a ton. I learned a lot about myself and things that I probably had no business in uh, sure. doing further, like uh, contracts. Or <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but out of that... Uh, out of that time period, I decided to apply to Harvard Business School and was subsequently accepted in. Hmm. And uh, once I got in, um, I'd applied after a couple of years, and they typically would like to see at least three. And so they asked me if I wanted to take a year off. I said, "Sure, yeah." I said, "Well, we'd like you know we'd like for you to grow up a little bit." And uh, I said, okay, that's fine. And I came back here and I went to work for my mother's tribe, the Omaha tribe. And it was very different than my father's tribe, the Cherokees. Cherokees are big and uh, kind of best practice. And the Omahas are small and not best practice. I, I'm sorry. Uh, what is What does best practice mean? Uh, uh, just a term for, um, I guess it's probably a management consulting term. Okay. Um, Best practice, meaning everything that, that they do, you can look at their policies and procedures and benchmark and say, Cherokees do everything great. Okay. And my mother's tribe is a smaller tribe and did not do things like that. Sure. And uh, I realized pretty quickly that just studying business wasn't going to fix some of those problems that I encountered working for my mom's tribe. Hmm. And uh, I got sent to some training And uh, while I was there, I came across uh, a desk that had a um, whole bunch of information about a project. And it turned out to be the Harvard Project on American Indian Economic Development uh, based out of the John F. Kennedy School of Government there at Harvard University. And uh, I began to look at some of the papers, and there was a nice gentleman sitting there. He actually happened to be Dr. Joseph Kalt, who was one of the founders. And I began to look at all the stuff out there and he smiled and this was early on in the project when he still went out and did a lot of the active recruiting and sat at the booths and chatted with people. And I began to look at the research and ultimately um, the Harvard project on American Indian economic development was uh, came out of uh, conversations with political economists there at the Kennedy school. So understanding economics, but as well the politics that were, uh, behind everything, which includes right. governmental structures, et cetera. And uh, one of the first papers was called Reloading the Die, as in dice in a game. Okay, yeah. And uh, it basically uh, 
illustrated uh, the whole question of the project, which is why do some tribes do better than others? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I looked down and I said, well, I'm from two tribes, and the <laughs> one that's not doing so well is like the Omahas, and the other one is my dad's tribe, the Cherokee, Cherokee Nation. Sure. He nodded and he says, that's exactly what we're trying to study. And so I said, hey, uh, I would like to learn more about this. And so he kind of giggled and smiled and says, well, that's great. And uh, I said, what would be the best way to learn more? And he said, well, if you applied to our master's program and got in, then maybe I could help you. And uh, I'm sure it seemed a long shot to him. And I said, okay, because I already got into the business school. And he paused. I didn't realize at the time how uh, few Native peoples went to the business school there at Harvard. And he said, excuse me? And I said, yeah, I, I got into the business school, and I'm you know, supposed to be going next fall. <laughs> and he said, okay, uh, yeah, you should apply. And I did. Perked up a little bit. Yep, and I did and was admitted, and I got That's a awesome. fellowship to, to uh, study both. So that was, uh, that was the beginning of my professional career. And, of course, after business school, I got really intrigued with – uh, what I had studied and had gone over to Europe and worked for a few years and oh, wow. uh, began um, my career in business development and corporate strategy. Sure. But uh, I would I would uh, argue at a certain point I was never really a good uh, corporate guy. I was never uh, uh, cutthroat enough to mm. really want to do well. Yep. And uh, I would argue that some of my morals were against – uh, yeah. what I saw in uh, corporate America. And so uh, as soon as I got a chance uh, at the urging of, of my mother, who is a retired nursing professor, she Very said, cool. you, you should be teaching. It will be your calling. And so for years and years, I fought that. Finally, I got an opportunity to teach a history course uh, for the Cherokee Nation, and it was just kind of a community uh, history course, sure, so, sure. Uh, very grassroots, very organic, and I just fell in love with it. I remember the master teacher came to watch me the first time, and uh, after the first hour interlude and break, she came up to me, and she smiled, and she said, it's quite the stage, isn't it? And I said, oh, yes, it is, and I was hooked. And so it was just a matter of time. Uh, was about to start my career at... Uh, Tulsa University teaching when I decided um, that uh, I needed to find something uh, a little more uh, permanent than being an adjunct. And one thing led to another, and I landed at uh, Creighton University, and that's been 15 years. And uh, the transition to this type of work, uh, as I mentioned, um, I was really interested in English and history and the humanities. Mm -hmm. And... um, Love my field. Uh, I'd like to think that I'm that I'm good at uh, corporate strategy. I've had a consulting firm for almost 15 years now, too. Here, and uh, but at a certain point, I became interested in uh, understanding what my purpose was. And um, long story short, I had been working with some of my graduate students, and uh, my philosophy around corporate strategy is that organizations should find the one thing that they do really, really well. Hmm. 
and they should isolate that and not worry about other things, and that becomes good strategy. Sure. And so uh, extrapolating that to the individual, the question to my graduate students was, what is your superpower is what I call it now. Mm -hmm. What's the one thing that you could do better than anyone else? And I had them, you know, uh, write down and be quiet for a little bit. And, and of course, whenever they were done, one of the students was finished and raised his hand and he said, Professor Keen, what's your, what's your superpower? And so I said, Oh, I knew you were going to ask me that. Uh, why don't you give me a, you know, a week or two and I'll come back with an answer. And that's when I realized that the uh, field of corporate strategy is truly interdisciplinary. So mm-hmm. meaning I have to know a little bit about finance and operations mm-hmm. and marketing and all the different, you know, disciplines and put it all together. And uh, I realized that I had a core competency in my own past for uh, writing and studying history and was like, I I really miss all that. Sure. And so uh, I began on a journey to write a book. Uh, I'm getting getting my my first manuscript published right now. And the title is um, Rediscovering America. That's our working title. And uh, it's it's about... uh, uh, ancient Native America and what was happening on this continent a thousand oh, years ago and wow. uh, beyond. That sounds, that so sounds like a good book. Yeah. So it uh, it took me uh, two to three years of research and and then I began to write. Which um, you know, when you talk to people who have written their their first book, uh, you'll hear sentiments like "hardest thing I ever did," "best thing I, I ever did," and sure, I, would, yeah. I would agree with that. It was yeah. really, really hard. The first first year of writing was really frustrating. And of course, you know, I was still teaching at my day yeah, job, but right. uh, I would often quote pull a Hemingway unquote, and I would chain myself to my chair oh. <laughs> <laughs> at about seven p.m. and would lock myself in literally until oh, around yeah. nine when I had to go to the bathroom terribly and. <laughs> And uh, would write stuff, and you know. I actually I I wrote a book in college because we had a professor who said, uh, "Everyone stand up who plans on writing a book." And a bunch of us stood up, like eighty percent of the class. And he said, "Almost none of you will write a book." And I went home that day. I said, "I'm going to write a book." <laughs> and it took me a year and a half, and I finished it, and I was. I was pumped, and then I read through it and realized I, I didn't agree with most of it anymore. So I right. never got published, but it was written, uh, and it was hard. You know, it, it was super difficult. I remember the first uh, few months. Every time that I would read something, I wanted oh, yeah. to puke. You know, and yeah. I was like, throw it out. Yeah, and uh, slowly over time, you know, as I got past telling anecdotal stories about myself, which no one really wants to probably hear, uh, and began to focus on more on content and history and began to find Mm -hmm. some themes. Uh, One of the things that happened uh, concurrently around that was I got uh, invited to learn more about uh, an anthropological site that uh, predated anything about my mother's tribe. The Omaha tribe is actually in the northeast northwest corner of iowa right on the south dakota border okay. um, uh, not would it have been part of like this the sioux tribe forgive my ignorance we're all Sioux. okay um, the um, 
you've got the primary body, the Dakota, Nakota, Lakota, and then you have um, smaller language families that are uh, tied to the to the to the greater Siouan language family. Okay. And so, uh, when you talked about those those uh, those rivers, Kent, that's mm-hmm. super important in yeah. terms of the history of this land and the people that mm-hmm. were a part of it. And so, you've got the Degi Ha Siouan language, which is uh, Omaha Ponca. Osage, Quapaw, Ka, or Kanza, as in the name. Okay, yeah. And then you've got the Shirweer or Jirweer uh, Siouan language family that includes the Iowa, uh, the Winnebago, uh, the Oto, and the Missouri peoples. Mm. And so um, those those names kind of refer to our ancient movements mm-hmm. um, more than likely it probably began with the Mississippi and uh, for example the translation of the of the name of the of the Omaha people Umaha it means the people that move against the current or against the oh, headwaters cool. and uh, Quapaw in our language we'd say Gachpa and it means downstream people okay and then uh, Osage is uh, children of the middle waters Mm-hmm. And um, Kanza or Konze uh, was more than likely a, a, a clan of a larger group, whether that was the Degiha or when the Suians and the Degiha and the Shirweer peoples were all together. And at that point, we're probably back a thousand years. Right. And uh, all of those names refer to our movements uh, probably away from one another as the larger mm. tribe began to to uh, grow into smaller tribes. How prevalent are those languages now within the tribe? Uh, it's hard. Um, it depends upon the uh, tribe. Uh, I would argue that today probably most of those tribes that I just mentioned all have some sort of language project. Uh, the true question becomes how much of the language was retained. Right. And yeah. so I'm, I'm very fortunate. Uh, my mother is a uh, fluent speaker, and so I was uh, raised around it. I, I don't think I really took it seriously until my adult life, and especially mm-hmm. in the last 10 to 15 years, I began to, as I came back home here, I began to study it a lot more. But uh, we still have other fluent speakers, but some of the tribes do not. So it's, it's really difficult. Wow. Um, but you know, we all try to help each other and they are similar and, uh, it's an important part of cultural sovereignty for indigenous peoples. Oh yeah. Uh, that anthropological dig, uh, it's got a couple of names. One is blood run and, uh, I, it, a, a fairly recent European, uh, colonizer name, uh, for sure, had something to do with what happened more, more uh, recently. Um, but the Iowais uh, call it Che, which means the place where our ancestors are buried. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I had uh, come across an anthropologist who had studied that his whole life, and I actually met him through a friend of mine who. Uh, <coughs> 
had met the anthropologist, and upon asking him some basic questions, you know, my friend uh, asked the anthropologist, uh, what tribe do you study? And he said, oh, it's a smaller tribe. No one really knows anything about it. You wouldn't know. And he said, well, try me. And he said, uh, the Omaha tribe. And <laughs> my friend said, oh, I know someone from that tribe. And uh, he said, what is it about the Omahas that you study? And I just started writing my book and became mm -hmm. interested in the Mississippian cultures, uh, which both of my tribes are descendants of. The most iconic uh, aspect of that was the um, urban experiment called Cahokia. We don't really know what oh, it was yeah. called at the time, but outside of St. Louis and at the yeah. confluence of um, the Missouri Mississippi and mm -hmm. the Ohio rivers. Yep. So north, south, east, and west, basically. Mm -hmm. And uh, its heyday was around 1050 to 1300 something. Mm -hmm. And so I just started all that research and was, you know, starting to, to, to uh, write about that uh, and had been visiting with my friend out in Colorado, kind of a father figure, and he's the one who met the anthropologist. So the next question that he asked to the anthropologist was, um, so what's the name of the site that, that you study about them? And he said, Blood Run. And he said, uh, what can you tell me about it? And he says, well, well, no one, it's really esoteric, and no one knows anything about it. And he's like, try me. And so he began to describe it. And it wasn't too far um, from the... Um, pipestone quarries in Minnesota, okay, uh, which were really important to indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. um, soapstone uh, infused with red ochre and other pigments, which are considered sacred to all the tribes. Mm -hmm. Okay, and uh, the first question that my friend uh, asked the anthropologist, because we had been chatting about it in Cahokia, he said, "Hey, what does it have to do with uh, Cahokia?" And the anthropologist. Uh, uh, was so surprised. <laughs> My friends uh, said it looked as if he was going to faint for a minute, and then he came back and said, "That's the question of my whole career. How did you know that?" And he said, "You got to meet my friend Taylor Keene." Yeah. Cool. So <clears throat> I got invited to go up there, and there was a number of um, pipestone tablets that had uh, basically pictographs sure. uh, on them, and. Uh, at the time, he said, you know, there's a lot of controversy about what these all mean, but mm -hmm. in, on, you know, in all honesty, we don't really know. And yeah. I said, well, uh, I've just started on this journey. This would be another great place to start. So yeah. I began to study ancient cosmology okay, yeah. and uh, began to find that some of these images uh, that were uh, carved into these pipestone tablets, as, as it were, um, had images pertaining uh, to the tripartite world of ancient indigenous cosmology. So the axis mundi we have as uh, the tree of life, and it's common to many cultures, okay, yeah. uh, Nordic cultures, uh, Kabbalistic, mystic Judaism, mm -hmm. and I'm sure many, many other cultures. And so the the uh, tree of life is the center of the universe, the axis mundi, and within its branches uh, is the upper realm. 
uh, in its roots is the lower realm or the watery realm. And uh, thus you have all these stories of uh, indigenous cosmology around the first humans. Mm. And uh, from that we have uh, first father and first mother, depending on the tribe. That's mm. when I began to realize that even though I come from two different tribes that were seemingly from different parts of the country, that's, that's a relative question. Mm. And just how far you go back and then you see commonalities. And yeah. more than likely, both my ancestral tribes were involved or in the orbit of Cahokia. It's wild oh, to me so that cool. some of those stories, I, I, I mean, there's, there's huge differences, right? But uh, there are so many similarities between stories of indigenous people and people in Ethiopia and things like that. There, there's a lot of key elements uh and I find it... China's the big one. Yeah. Is it? Why, mm -hmm. why is that? Just because, uh, I mean, one, um, a, good, a good chunk of my DNA and other indigenous people's DNA is uh, either uh, Chinese uh, and or one of the indigenous peoples, the Ainu, uh, of uh, Japan. Hmm. Okay. And so... Uh, Plus all of the before. basic. That's interesting. Yeah. So does that then, does that then. I mean, we came from somewhere. Indigenous right. peoples are nowhere in the Bible, but somehow we got here. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, there's been a bunch of really interesting things happening that have been great timing for my book and the study sure. of ancient Native America. Um, one of which is down in uh, present day White Sands, New Mexico. Okay, and yeah. they found some footprints that they've been able to carbon carbon news. date yeah. to 23,000 years ago. Wow. So it kind of blows out of the water some of these previous theories mm -hmm. of anthropology. Um, one of the most powerful and poignant rules of anthropology was the Bering Strait theory. And so yeah. there was a land bridge in between Siberia and Alaska. And... Uh, it was really cemented by one of the inaugural founders of the Smithsonian Institution, as well as the Governmental Bureau of American Ethnology, Anthropology in America. Sure. Uh, his name was John Wesley Powell, who did a lot for water rights, okay. uh, especially yeah. out west, hmm. but uh, also traversed the Colorado River and uh, uh, did not always have a great relationship with indigenous tribes around there. Yeah. And as the inaugural uh, director, he laid out a number of tenets. One was the Columbus Discovery Doctrine. I'm sorry, but he was the first white man, but probably not even the first white man. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> and then <clears throat> the uh, Bering Strait Theory was mm -hmm. another one. And sadly, for the next, you know, 100 to almost 150 years now, that has become one of the main tenets of anthropology that... Uh, we had to come across on the Bering Strait theory. Mm -hmm. And you had all these theories around the Clovis peoples and, and uh, you know, the questions, you know, were they responsible for the, you know, for the extinction uh, or, the or ecocide of megafauna, yeah. et cetera. Um, what, what do you find, uh, whether it's scientifically or, or just believing because it seems to uh, pique your interest, what, what do you find in terms of theory of, of uh, indigenous people being here, uh, do you find to believe the most? Or 
um, at least be able to connect with the most? Well, I, I think the first thing is that's how this journey uh, into the book, into ancient Native America, and rediscovering America, right. as it were, was to start with cosmology. Everything about indigenous peoples is about our stories. Mm-hmm. And so we began to uncover that we had all these same, you know, similar stories. Sure. And uh, a lot of it goes back, uh, may sound a bit far-fetched, but it does not to indigenous peoples, but uh, going back to how did we get here as human beings? Mm-hmm. And so uh, you have stories, and this is within both of my tribes, the Omahas and the Cherokee, sure. that we come from the Seven Sisters constellation. Um, Europeans okay. will call it Pleiades. Okay. Yep. And that we journey through the dark rift of, of the Milky Way, our souls do. And we have stories around how we got here, uh, ultimately by asking the existential question of, who am I? And then our souls traveled through the dark rift of the Milky Way, guided by the morning star, which of course we know is Venus, our next mm-hmm. planet, and then mm-hmm. landed here. And um, in many of those stories, those souls um, took the shape of animals. Mm-hmm. And uh, ultimately, it just depends upon the tribe, and that's where the variation over time comes from. Sure. The story originally comes out of Siberia, and I've been able to find oh, okay. that in my research. But um, it just depends upon the tribe, but it's known to anthropologists as the earth diver myth. And ultimately, one of the animals dives down, finds the clay uh, in a water-covered planet, which was early Earth, and brought it up and gave it to turtle turtle sacrificed itself and put the clay on its back and that became the land so thus mm-hmm. we refer to um the land as turtle island mm-hmm. so okay. began with cosmology began to study all those aspects and just you know it was it was like peeling an onion you yeah. pull off one layer and then there's more and you right. say oh, well right. and there's more questions and and more uh, research. So that's that's been the journey of the book. I I believe I read that the English version of your um, indigenous name is bison mane. Yes. Does that mean bison is your spirit animal? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll do just a quick introduction here in our language. Aho, evida wangade, ijaje, wiwita, bagija. Uh, and so that's just a greeting in our language. Uh, all so all my, that was hello? Uh, that was hello. That was my name. That's the okay. tribe that I belong to. So a uh, translation would be, uh, I carry the name of Bison Maine, which is mm. of the Earthen Bison Clan. Uh, of the uh, earthen moieties of the people that move against the current. Okay. Mm. And so that's what that translates as. Aho is an affirmation. Hello. The term ewi thy wangade means all my relations. And so that's one of the core values, the tenets that the majority of indigenous tribes have. And that's one of those common ones. Another would be water is life, which was the impetus for uh, all of the water protectors uh, in the pipeline battles over the last 10 years or so mm-hmm. around the sanctity yep. of water. So most of the tribes have these inherent uh, 
uh, core values, which I would argue go back a very long ways. And it's those core values and uh, similar cosmologies that, you know, unite us over time. Yeah, I like that. And I think that word that you just used there, unite, is what plays into that. You know, there's so, so much importance behind language. The way we talk with one another is how you sense, is this somebody that I'm going to be able to feel comfortable relating with? How much am I willing to share with this person? And I think that's an ancient thing in of itself, you know, that that exchange through through communication. But I also like the intentionality of it of, hey, I'm going to tell you where I stand. I'm going to tell you who I am. I have pride in where I, you know, where I come from, where I, you know, I like so that idea of clan is that like a, a, a family concept so would would uh you said the buffalo clan would that be like the rest of your immediate family would be part of that or is that is that uh something based on something else yes uh that's part of the picture so uh at least with my uh, mother's tribe and 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 most tribes and both mine do have uh, a certain number of clans okay. you'll see uh, an often commonality around seven but uh it doesn't mean that there uh, weren't more sure. for some tribes sure. and um whenever the omahas come come together for a celebration of the harvest of the uh, three sisters and in the omahas case we have four so corn bean squash and sunflowers yeah, we to ask you about that yeah That's um when we, we when we come together at harvest time at the harvest moon, uh, we have our ceremony celebration uh, around the f- full moon in August, which will okay. uh, believe right be right in the middle of August this year. Okay. And as we historically have come together for that, uh, we um, form a sacred circle, and mm-hmm. we call that the Huthaga. and. Um, it is uh, comprised on the northern half of the sky clans, and on the southern half of the circle are the earthen clans, and that's where my 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 uh, mother's clan comes from, and that's the, that's the that's the clan that I carry the name Bison Mane from. And there's other Bison clans uh, in the sky as well, but ours was responsible for the adjudication. Uh, and the execution of an annual bison hunt. So okay. um, that's what the term Honga Shinu means. It means uh, those from Honga. And so it's probably an earth reference going going back. But that's why we're the earthen clans versus the sky clans who have the name Inchta Sonday, which means lightning comes from their eyes. Mm. And it's a Thunderbird reference okay. as one of the messengers of the upper realm. Wow. And so all these things I began to piece together. And in essence, that's what the book is about. Wow. It's and then at a certain awesome. point, what did we eat? And that was the, that was the beginnings of uh, Sacred Seed. I love that. And uh, really began to realize the importance. And I didn't have to look any further than my own uh, culture and heritage. Uh, we have the same um, story. Um, translated as the earth diver myth to both the Omahas and the Cherokees. Uh, And in the Cherokee cosmology, you have uh, first father, whose name is Kanati, which uh, loosely translates to the great hunter. Some would Mm. even say deer, deer hunter. Sure. And first woman is Selu, which is our word for corn. 
and, and our cosmologies, you have um, mother corn. And uh, historically, uh, amongst Cherokees and other Iroquoian uh, peoples, she was an actual person. And uh, oftentimes our artists will represent her as uh, having the body of, of corn, but kind of like a human uh, face and sure. visage to it. Sure. And so uh, as I began to realize the importance of uh, how important corn was to our cosmology and to our way of life, that was the beginnings of uh, a sacred seed. Hmm. And uh, I had gotten... Uh, kicked in the pants by uh, another lifelong mentor of mine, uh, Dr. Deward Walker. He's the chair emeritus of anthropology at CU Boulder. Okay. Uh, when I was first starting uh, thinking about teaching, Deward kind of tucked me under his wing and uh, helped encourage me. And probably around 15 years ago, uh, out of the blue, he called me up one day, and uh, this is how Deward talks. Young man, what are you doing to protect your corn? Uh, <laughs> Hi, Deward. Uh, corn? Do what? And he said, and he pounded the table on his side and says, you're tribal corn. And uh, to what he was referring to uh, is now what we know around um, a lot of the uh, big ag seed companies mm. like Monsanto and Syngenta, and he was following uh, as an anthropologist. He's a cultural yeah. anthropologist who uh, advocates on behalf of uh, Native peoples, so one of the good anthropologists. And he was noting what was happening in the country of India and how uh, indigenous farming methods were being displaced by the big seed companies yeah. who came in with you know these very American... Uh, onerous con contracts and genetically modified mm -hmm. organisms and were displacing mm -hmm. the farmers of India. There's a wonderful uh, documentary called Seed, the movie that talks a lot about this and also talks a lot about indigenous seed, seed, seed keepers. Seed keepers. Uh, and uh, it, it, was in a, it was a really important point in my life because um, Deward said next was, you know, right now these big uh, ag seed companies are doing other countries, but I'm afraid uh, tribal seeds are next. Mm -hmm. And he began to explain to me about intellectual property law in the United States, especially as it pertains to big ag. So this goes back to the 1920s, kind of cemented under the Reagan administration. Um, where uh, ultimately it had mutated and evolved. So if, say, some of Monsanto's corn cross-pollinates some of sacred seeds, they own my seeds mm -hmm. by, by intellectual property law. And I was shocked and dismayed at that. Yeah. And uh, I remember telling Dewar, they can't do that. And he said, they are, and you need to pay attention and learn. Mm -hmm. And so that... Uh, of course, quote, planted a seed within me. Uh, a few years later, I was serving on the Cherokee National uh, Council, the legislative body for the Cherokee Nation. And uh, 
in in one day came uh, Pat Gwen, our uh, head of agriculture and an ethnobotanist. Okay. And uh, Pat came in and put up a picture of the seed bank at Svalbard, Norway, and said, uh, I don't know if we should put some of our Cherokee seeds in there, um, but we should be doing something like that. And, of course, I raised my hand amongst all the rest of the public officials and said, hey, um, can we talk about Monsanto and Syngenta, and do they have some of our seeds? And uh, what should we do about it? And, of course, everyone, what are you guys talking about? What are you guys talking about? And Pat's answer uh, forever changed my life. And his answer was, yeah, they probably do have our seeds, but it doesn't matter. And, of course, I was shocked at that. I was, what do you mean it doesn't matter? Right, right. And he said, no, it, it doesn't matter. What matters is that we as Cherokees embrace our ancestral agricultural life ways. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, all right. So um, that was the early days of the Cherokee Nation Seed Bank. Okay. And... Uh, of course, uh, just a couple few years after that, I accepted a position at Creighton University and came back up here to uh, Nebraska. And not too long uh, after, eventually, they got started. And I saw an advertisement for, for the Cherokee Nation Seed Bank. And uh, as a Cherokee citizen, I ordered a couple small packets. They only allowed you two. And I got some Cherokee white flower corn and some trail of tear beans, which, of course, okay. sustained the uh, Cherokees on their diaspora out of the southeast mm-hmm. to present-day Oklahoma, formerly Indian Territory, mm-hmm. and uh, began to learn a little bit about the Three Sisters, and I didn't have any indigenous squash seeds, and I had gone up to um, the uh, seed bank and at uh, at the Benson Public Library, and uh, subsequently it had been started by a very dear friend and colleague, uh, Betsy Goodman, who had fought some of these laws that made it illegal for individuals to trade seeds. Hmm. And so just within the last five, five, seven years was that changed. And so I was able to get some cool, I think they were butternut squashes, maybe acorns and planted my first, you know, three sisters plot and subsequently just, just fell in love and, uh, realized, uh, upon harvest that uh, those white flower varieties had changed amongst all the plants. I had seven or eight plants. I think we had 21 to 30 ears the first year, and I've got pictures of those. But the the seeds came as a white flower, which is white with sort of pastels, yellows, blues, really lightly colored. But the iconic image, and you can find it on sacredseed.org, sure, a bunch of these sure. pictures. But you'll see that there was the white flower um, varieties. Uh, there were ears that were yellow with multicolor. There was red with multicolor and red ears and purple ears and right, orange right. ears and black ears. Yeah, that's, that's so and, diverse. Uh, I was just what blown that, away by it. Wasn't it wasn't all just yellow? <laughs> no, no, no. There's yeah, number two <laughs> corn, yeah. No, the, so what was that? Fe- I mean, was that like an incredibly empowering feeling to, to have that first harvest? and and Very powerful. I, I mean, food. Life-changing. Yeah, f- food represents freedom, right? When you have, when you can 
take care of your own needs in that way. Mm-hmm. That that means, in a way, you're controlling your own destiny. No, you know, when you do, when you have nothing, which is, uh, you know, sadly, been a means of con- control throughout the history of not just this country, but all over the place. Right? Uh, when people are hungry, they're easier to control. And, Absolutely. And uh, when you saw these these uh, varieties that were sacred to your to your people growing in your own plot I mean just kind of describe that feeling for us when 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 you got that first harvest um, it, it was definitely life-changing uh, for sure and uh, I of course now understand that um, there is something important about uh, human beings being grounded to the earth, mm-hmm. uh, the yeah, ability yes. to get your hands into the soil, the yeah. uh, to understand the cycles of nature and time. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I was getting started, I had some of these Cherokee varieties, but um, I knew right off the bat that Cherokees didn't need any help. There's plenty of people and right. uh, plenty of resources, and uh, they had a great head start. But I looked at my mother's tribe, the Omahas, and said, well, this is where I live. I need to find indigenous you know, varieties for here. And so right. that, that was the beginning of, of wow. uh, sacred seed. And so that, that first harvest, how did it taste compared uh, to what you're used to? Oh, I, I think the easiest example is anyone who's had white rice versus wild indigenous okay. rice. Oh, yeah. Um, much more of uh, sort of... A, Earthy, maybe even a sort of a meaty taste to yeah. it. You like ta- grainy. You can taste bit. the additional nutrition. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I, I was blessed to be able to uh, teach a course at uh, Creighton University. It was called The Economics of Sacred Seeds. And I had, uh, oh, somewhere between 10 and 15 students who were mm-hmm. all uh, super interested. And uh, as I began to do the proper scholarly thing, I had a reading list for the students to uh, go through. And one of the most uh, impactful works uh, to my journey with Sacred Seed um, had to do with the notes that were taken um, by Oscar Will, who, uh, before starting his own own seed company, had... uh, been a part of the trading posts with the tribes that went back to the 1850s and to the 1870s before all the all the tribes uh out that were previously indigenous to nebraska were uh summarily and sadly um moved out of here down Mm -hmm. to indian territory and uh Oscar had documented all these things and many years later his son had posthumously uh, published that that book and uh, as I started my journey looking for ancient Omaha seeds I became really uh, interested in finding um, an Omaha pumpkin squash and as I began my journey uh, I heard lots of stories now I call them uh, uh, reservation myths Okay. Yeah. As I began to start within the tribe, I heard a lot of people say, "Oh yeah, if you go down to my grandma's basement, there's some seeds in a jar down there." And every time I went and look, I never found any. So, yeah. including my own family. <laughs> and uh, so, 
eventually someone said, hey, um, you need to go out to the Fur Traders Museum. And when I first heard it, I said, Fur Traders Museum, what is, why? Right. And I said, well, they've got Omaha pumpkin seeds there. And uh, eventually I made my, my way over there and realized that it was the legacy of Oscar Will and his seed company. And they had maintained a lot of these older seeds. Wow. Uh, as I began to visit with the proprietor uh, of the Fur Traders Museum, she was one of the leaders who had said, you know, we need to grow these seeds and mm-hmm. uh, we need to share them with people. And they, you know, sold them for a few bucks per packet, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I was blown away when I was like, you have Omaha pumpkin squash. She yeah, says, yeah, we do. Like you found gold. It was. Wow. And uh, along the way, she said, you need to read uh, the book on Buffalo Birdwoman, uh, who is another Upper Plains indigenous agriculturalist, and uh, explained a lot about how the tribes planted, what they planted, when, wow, how, and why. Hmm. And uh, Oscar Will's book, uh, Corn of the Upper Missouri River Tribes is is loosely the uh, title of it. There's always more to it, but you can find oh, it yeah. pretty easily out there. And uh, in it, uh, he did a, a number of really important things that helped people like me, you know, uh, hundred plus years later, be able to you know recreate what had been happening. And it said, uh, you know, not only uh, did it explain how the tribes, whether it was Omaha or Ponca or uh, one of the Lakota-speaking tribes uh, or the Pawnee, um, had all these different interpretations about what we had planted, how. Sure. And uh, that was that was the start, and that's when I realized that the Omahas had a fourth sister uh, besides corn, bean, and squash. And, of course, we know... Uh, corn is kind of the rock star, but it takes nitrogen out of the ground. Right, yep. The beans put it back in, so we plant them together in a mound mm. together. So un- unlike European, you know, tilling methodologies, <laughs> we, we uh, parcel it out. To- yes, why not plant where you can put the nitrogen back in? And then, of course, the uh, third uh, sister is squash, and she serves as ground cover, but also a deterrent uh, to. Uh, raccoons and deer okay yeah and then uh anyone who has spent any time in uh nebraska or iowa knows that somewhere uh june july august you're gonna have a big storm and a big wind Mm -hmm. and uh will knock down you know 10 15 20 percent of your of your uh, harvest and so uh the omaha's and all the other tribes indigenous to Nebraska here, we planted a wall of sunflowers, mm. at least on the south side. And most of the Omaha plots would have it on all all uh, four sides. Some wow. of the tribes planted in circular plots, some in rectangles, some in squares. But uh, in this area, you'll see uh, to block the wind. Yeah, just to create a wind windbreak. Yep. That's, mm-hmm. uh, yep. that's genius. And so as I, um, how I figured out the importance of the squash, uh, the, First year I planted in my backyard. The second year I partnered up with my university uh, with our uh, greenhouse and our biology department. Okay. And uh, the gentleman that uh, was so gracious to help me, but he was a scientist. And so even though I told him about companion planting, when it came time to plant, he planted the corn over here and the beans over here and the squash over there. 
as uh, science would uh, dictate. Mm-hmm. I was like, no, 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 they're supposed to be together, but he didn't listen. Yeah. Uh, but that same year, we had um, planted other plots. And I'm, I remember uh, as a scientist, uh, he did not have the same spiritual connection to those seeds and to these ancient ways yeah, as I sure. did. And I was uh, sadly dismayed when he sent a note one morning and says, well, corn's ready, but the raccoons already got it. And so oh. <laughs> I got in the car and was upset and hurt because, you know, my precious seeds, you know. Right, right. And uh, it, it appeared that the raccoons ran and dove onto each stalk and twisted and turned until they tore them all off. Oh. And uh, there must have been two of them because uh, we found within a 100-yard radius uh, these two sort of circles where they tuck their bounty. And mm. it appears that they would take a bite, usually not more than a bite, maybe a few bites, and then they would throw it. So there was these two concentric circles of their oh. carnage of all of our corn. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, of course, that was, that was painful. Uh, but fortunately, we had different plots, and uh, I was convening with some of our sacred seed ambassadors, people that, that helped me take care of it. I learned very quickly you can't do this work by yourself. Right, yeah, it's too much. Yeah, I was carrying 80-pound bags of peat or uh, wood chips or something and threw my back out. Oh. And after that, I was like, I need help. Yeah. <laughs> so I was working with some of our sacred seed ambassadors, and um, it was it was one of those ambassadors that pointed out um, you didn't lose any squash at these two plots. Mm. And so we looked at it and of course, you know, we had some data from, from it all at least a yeah. uh, number of years and harvest and how we planted and tucked notes and stuff and yeah. realized those plots where uh, the, the raccoons didn't take it was where there was squash. And so uh, after that, I began to do a little bit of research and realized that there's little sort of cilia hair on a real indigenous squash plant oh, that bothers. Almost like pricks. Pricks, the, yes. Yeah. And, it, yep. and it, yeah, it's, it's, it really bothers the vines, them. Yeah. And how I was able to cement that fact was uh, I was coming home one night to one of my previous homes in uh, Midtown Omaha. Dundee is what we call it. And uh, anyone who lives in Dundee knows there's plenty of raccoons around there, and they primarily live in the sewers, and they eat trash. (laughs) Trash pandas. Yeah. And uh, because I had planted um, a garden that just exploded uh, out of what had been formerly been my backyard, and again, if uh, listeners want to look, they can look on the sacredseed.org, and there's some Really cool pictures. Yeah, those pictures but, are impressive. I mean, but so you'll 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 see uh, this uh, picture that I took from the second floor of my home, and you see just um, corn, bean, and squash and sunflowers just packed together so tightly. Wow! And it's from the second floor, and you can see the power lines, which are at twelve feet, and the sunflowers went up to sixteen, and then drooped over, and it was just wow. amazing. So right off the bat, that transformation. Um, occurred in my backyard, but also in my life. Mm -hmm. And very soon, you know, there was newspapers and television 
uh, stations interested in all that. But not only that, but... Who's this guy not mowing his lawn? What's <laughs> right. going on over here? Yeah, what's the matter with him? He doesn't mow his grass every, <laughs> every three days. Grow food, grow plants, not grass. Yeah, that's yes. right. Amen. And uh, I realized that you know, when you do something like that, you're going to attract pollinators and yep. mm-hmm. spiders and snakes and uh, bees and nature wasps. Lo- and nature loves diversity. Yes. And uh, uh, I was just blown away by that. And one of those nights I, I had come home and uh, uh, at a neighbor's house, she had a, uh, a flat roof that the raccoons had sort of set up shop at. And uh, she had let me know. She's like, they're close and they want to go in your yard. But for whatever reason, they're not going in. I said, I think I know why. So that night I was coming home and I remember pulling in and, and the headlights from the car shone on one of their eyes. I don't remember if they were yellow or mm. orange, but I was like, ah, there There's they are. The enemy. <laughs> and they were hanging off the side of the flat roof uh, at the neighbor's. And as I came in through the backyard, uh, I was always had to be careful to dodge, especially spiders, because but these oh, huge, yeah. huge oh. webs, and yes, <laughs> right on your face, dodge. yeah, <laughs> never fails. Dodging all those, and then saw the <clears throat> raccoons, and they were literally hanging over the edge, kind of watching me, but they wouldn't come down into the yard, and there were squash everywhere. And so my experiment was, I picked up um, pretty good sized fruit, carefully pulled up the uh, tendrils that attach it to the ground and moved over towards the raccoon and it hissed and uh, territorial uh it was afraid okay and as i got closer i put it up to it and it turned and it ran wow so that's uh, it was definitely keyed in on that seeds are teachers um plants are teachers and we need to listen to them because mm-hmm. there's so many things to be learned from it and so i've just got i don't know how many stories of understanding uh all all the teachings that the that the seeds of sacred seed have uh, given to me and and to others i hope well, that, that's something i've always appreciated about native american culture heritage whatever you want to call it is that connectivity to all aspects of nature you know it's it's easy for someone to say oh i'm going to be a wildlife biologist i'm just going to focus on the the animals on the landscape or i'm going to be a geologist i'm going to look at what is the foundation of the earth or i'm going to be i'm going to be a uh, you know a botanist and look at the plants whatever it is we kind of section it off but native american culture wraps that all together you've been describing water you've been describing uh, the geology side of things you've been describing the plant life and now we're even getting into the the animal life and, and even insects right sure with the pollinators and and uh i think that the raccoon serves as a good example of where things have gotten today uh right i heard a just a fascinating statistic the other day when i was listening to a podcast talking about raccoons and um uh, they went over the distribution of raccoons at I think I think the earliest data was was around settlement for Western you know Western expansion Europeans uh, starting to to move across the landscape and that distribution was like two raccoons per square mile and today it's like around 200 and everything is so out, out of balance and and uh, what you've established in your garden 
is a little circle of balance. And it shows how each player fits into that, that ecosystem. And uh, if we keep looking for that simple way of, you, you, maybe that's a, maybe that's a, a European born problem, right? Where we try to just boil it. Give me the, the simplest thing, right? You worry about this, you worry about this, you worry about this, but we can't do that. We got to look at it in that whole picture. And I think mm-hmm. that that's kind of what you're describing there with that being connected to the land as native Americans culture has been for thousands of years where you do take that holistic view of of everything and so when we tie that into what nick nicholas and i represent with hoxie native seeds and the prairie farm um, we're trying to bring back the part of the landscape that has so much to do with the plant life but also the animal life the insect life Mm -hmm. um, that goes into that and was here for thousands of years right right yeah i mean uh, virtually undisturbed right and of course there are people living here but they're living in harmony with it instead of this dominion mindset of you know it look really good there is a monoculture of <laughs> of you know yeah. one a lot of it goes back to the uh in the words of aldo leopold into mm. the abrahamic yeah uh covenant so that goes back to genesis mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. Uh, out of the Garden of Eden, then uh, first Adam had uh, dominion, mm-hmm. and then uh, therefore uh, it was attendant to all human beings that could have dominion over the plants and the animals. Mm-hmm. And I vehement, vehemently disagree with that. Mm. And well, uh, well, and look what you know if you if you go into the Bible and you look at that story of of Adam, his first job was to take care of the garden, to keep mm-hmm. the garden, and that aspect of dominating that's not taking care you know that's right that's that's so even there it's i think it's a, a misinterpretation by those who feel that 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 is what you know we're allowed to do based on what the bible says and i i think that that abrahamic uh covenant is really what has driven to what you were referring to at the beginning of the podcast uh, you were talking about how I was one of the most terraformed places mm-hmm. on the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's everywhere, but somewhere um, became an obsession with uh, economically yielding farming, mm-hmm. uh, every aggregable acre that's out yep. there. Yep. And so, uh, as you all know, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners do, was... Uh, you know, the displacement of the natural flora and fauna mm-hmm. uh, resulted in things like the Dust Bowl. Yeah. Uh, yep. Tilling. Tilling is very much a European uh, concept. And uh, as we all now know, it uh, the first year you do it, it, it releases a bunch of uh, nitrogen, which is great. That's why pictures of my first year of sacred seed were so wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um but after that, you're releasing the carbon and yep. not reinforcing all of the mycorrhizal yep. network underneath. Yep. And so as I started with the sacred seed, um, you know, we began with the, with the four sisters. But uh, even the first year, that first big plot, um, I'd gotten tobacco seeds and 
uh, sweet grass mm. and uh, wild strawberries and planted them all across. And um, as we began to do, you know, very low impact tilling in subsequent years, you could see where plant diversity was. You saw this rich, dark loam. Right. Um, with those evidence of um, fungi and mycorrhizal yep. networks and yep. healthy. And I realized then, you know, there's, there's a, life. There's life. There's a whole ecosystem in there. Mm. And that really only comes from deep root systems and uh, plant diversity. So one of the other um, partners that I've had um, in this journey with Sacred Seed has been the uh, Land Institute. Institute down in Salina, okay. Kansas. Yep. So it's a research farm that focuses on deep root systems, sure. and then and their goal is to create uh, perennial food crops. Mm. So uh, I adore my relationship with the people at the Land Institute, although I vehemently uh, don't agree. Uh, hook, line, and sinker, that that is, that is the way to feed the world. Right. And so I've countered and uh, gifted the uh, Land Institute um, for Sisters Guard, and we're into our fourth year of doing it. Mm. The original intention was to get some of the scientists to look at that, uh, which slowly, you know, some of them are. But uh, sure. as with most people, the older uh, generations are... Um, much harder to sway towards this. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to this deep philosophical difference between Europeans and indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. And the sad part that I've learned is that there is something inherent uh, within the European um, westward expansionism that uh, said that it was a God-given right for Europeans to, mm. to take over this land. Yeah. And I've, I've heard muddlings from some of the scientists at the Land Institute. Uh, to paraphrase, what I, what I heard was they had their chance, meaning indigenous mm. peoples. And that's mm. just not fair. Yeah. Mm. And it's, it's not as wise as it could be. No. Um, I was given a uh, talk this past week, and I remember a gentleman asked the most, one of the most poignant questions. He said, how would this world be different if, if early Europeans listened to native peoples? Mm. And I said, well, oh, wow, that's, that's a good question. Matter of fact, I pondered this with some colleagues, and uh, you know, certainly some of the ideals of indigenous peoples bled into the United States. Uh, the fact that we're the United States of America was probably pretty heavily influenced um, by some of the founding fathers who looked to the Iroquois and uh, Confederacy hmm. and uh, understood that a coalition of um, states rather uh, than one federal republic Unfortunately, a lot of it ended at that point. Had we talked about uh, embracing indigenous ag methodologies, the face of this continent would look a lot different. Yeah. And perhaps the soil health would be better. Yeah. Which, of course, is why I love what you guys are doing at Hoxie about prairie restoration. Yeah. And it's so important. One of the last things 
that I challenge institutions like the Land Institute. And I was like, okay, the land. Mm-hmm. We love the land. Yeah. Uh, what about the animals? Yep. So yep. we began to talk about uh, agroforestry, first of all, um, the use of animals together, yeah. uh, especially bison, which yeah, I'm yeah. really interested we, we, in. We just had a conversation with with uh, Carter Niemeyer. He was the he was working for uh, wild you know USDA Wildlife Services, which you know he explained to us the old guard of that was more just predator control at one time, but that kind of evolved into something that I would say is better today than what it once was. It is more looking to make, make it work having predators on the landscape. We're talking out West. And then, uh, he eventually, uh, did kind of, as he said, he got put on loan to us fish and wildlife services and was the, the boots on the ground operator to, work with Canadian trappers to get wolves back into the West. Yeah. And he was a guy. It's important. Yeah. Flying, flying them back in. And we had this conversation with him about exactly what you're talking about. You know, we, so let's say Nicholas and, and I, we, we hit our goal of, you know, I don't, I mean, we, we gotta be realistic too with where things sit right now, as far as how many people are living here now. I don't know that we're ever going to be able to hit 80% of our surface area being prairie once again. But let's say we, we got really far and may, I mean, even hit like 30% of the of Iowa's surface area is restored to prairie. Is it really prairie if we don't have bison, if we don't have it's wolves? It's not. Right. They're, they're so tight. It's a full ecosystem. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's and there's so, a balance and a harmony that comes when everything's yes. included. Yep. Yep. And, and we even can look at the, the, my favorite example within all of that is the example of the jackrabbit. You know, the jackrabbit were prevalent across Iowa. They almost are, you know, extirpated from Iowa at this point. And the biggest reason they were here was because of buffalo. Jackrabbits don't use cover like most critters do. You know, they don't, they don't look to hide. They look to run. They look to outrun, you know, a, a raptor flying down from the air or a coyote chased them on the ground. And they can't do that with how we currently use the landscape at all. They're totally choked off by a, a stand of corn that's there for too much of the year or a stand of beans that's there for too much of the year. They needed these giant lawnmowers, for lack of a better term, working out in front of them, cutting down that prairie grass. And so that they could they could be here, but you can't have those things if you leave them out. And so then there therein lies, and this is why we brought Carter on. Just to, I mean, there isn't really a right answer to this question, but just to get his his philosophical view, because he believes his work of bringing wolves back to the West was incredibly important, as as do we. <clears throat> what would it take to get a place like Iowa that's been so? man-made at this point right what would it take for there to be a societal acceptance of bringing back that wildlife you know to bring back free-ranging not just penned up but free-ranging bison free-ranging elk free-ranging wolves and could you just maybe i think you already hinted at it but explain the importance of why we need to consider that no, it, it, it's uh, terribly important, and to just go back to the overall 
indigenous perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it has become a matter of control of the land, and mm-hmm. again, it goes back to that Abrahamic uh, covenant to dominion, which is I think what has fueled. Uh, I remember um, visiting with one of the board members for the Land Institute, and uh, I was inquiring about this uh, obsession with planting every agreeable acre out there. Mm-hmm. And his response was, <clears throat> it would be a sin not to. <laughs> and I'm like, what kind of religion says that? Right. Let us exploit every resource we yeah. can. Yeah. And so wow. uh, that's the whole mindset. Yep. And that's, that's what we're fighting here. Yep. Uh, indigenous peoples say it's, you know, it's about the plants and the animals together. It's yep. about multiplicity of all those. So back to your question, what's going to change society around it? Um, save a uh, horrible catastrophe of blight. I mean, we've already had several, but it didn't, mm-hmm. it didn't change uh, no. the way that America thought about planting. Um, you'd think the Dust Bowl would have been enough to get yeah. serious about yeah. deep root systems again. I think most people and, aren't even aware of how bad that was. You know, that history has been, been brushed away, you know, forgotten. And so save something sadly catastrophic um, while that would uh, foster rapid change, uh, it would be devastating to everyone involved. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the way that ag in America is going uh, on a commercial level is uh, certainly monocrop. Yeah. At this point, it's you know corn and soybeans. And mm-hmm. Depending on the area of the country, there's some smaller aspects. But uh, as we see the rise of prairie restoration as well as the rise of uh, hopefully backyard farms through places mm-hmm. like Sacred Seed, then yep. that, that is an antidote to it. Mm-hmm. And um, I've done some very um, exciting work and learning with the Nature Conservancy's um, Broken Kettle location that's out right outside okay, of, yeah, of, that. Yeah. Out of Sioux City. And uh, they've got a medium-sized herd there of true uh, bison DNA, real, mm-hmm. not European yeah, bison, not, mixed not with European cows. Right? Yeah, uh, real, real bison there. And they've also done a, a concerted effort to uh, incorporate the role of fire, which is definitely a part mm-hmm. of indigenous ag historically, whether it was lightning or uh, fueled by the human hand. And uh, they can illustrate just how, where they burn, that's where mm-hmm. the bison migrate to. Wow. And uh, it's just incredible. And I've learned uh, so much from Scott Motes, who's uh, the lead person up there at uh, Broken Kettle and uh, served on uh, a panel with him as well. And just remember learning so much from him, mm-hmm. uh, just how the difference between the hoofs of bison uh, versus European cattle hoofs mm. made a, makes a huge difference sure. and that the bison helps aerate the land and their hides uh, attract you know natural seeds and therefore seed dispersal and mm-hmm. the the role of uh, the, the uh, plant name that I always remember was Buffalo Wallow. 
yeah. and it happens to where only wherever they lay down yep. and take away everything else and you see this beautiful little yellow flower that is huh. so cool and uh i just love uh, spending time as a matter of fact I, I i need to get up there because it's uh uh, a little bit past calving time, but I want to see the little ones, and they yeah. invited me up to to see. But they've done a tremendous job of uh, prairie restoration there, and That's then of fantastic. course yeah. uh, working working with bison towards all of all of what they're you know what they're doing. Um, I, next step would be you know food crops, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah, yeah, that would be really cool. I want to I want to go back. I want to hit a point because sure. Um, I am an avid and, and wholehearted Christian, but I actually totally agree with you on how people use the, the verse that you're talking about is Genesis 1, verse 28, and I hear it all the time. You hear right. it all the time in agriculture. I'm going to read it real quick. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And at first glance... That's the NIV version. Um, at first glance, that gives a lot of justification for us to do what we've done. And who cares? Because we're the boss and we can come in. But that same word rule is the same word that he uses later. I actually went to I went to two different Bible colleges. So that is what my education is in. Um, and so I work on a prairie farm, which, you know, makes <laughs> sense. But uh, uh, the it's the same word that he uses for husbands to rule over the household, right. and it doesn't mean rule. The word in the, that verse is to protect and provide. Sure. And so, yeah, I believe it, and whether you want it to, you know, whether you believe it's a myth or you really believe those words were spoken by God, uh, I believe that he wasn't saying, hey, do whatever you want. It was, hey, this land is here, n- not not for you, but it's here with you, and y- you are a part of it, so be a part of it, and your part is protection. Your part is to um, help bring balance, not just crap all over it. You know what I mean? And uh, uh, we've used, I, um, I've also studied church history and uh, it's a lot of sad history there. There's a lot of verses been used to justify a lot of horrible things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, there are horrible, you know, massacres and uh, forced conversions and things like that. Well, well and even if you, if you stay, stay within that story, like I was saying earlier, you go back earlier in the story, what Adam was told to take care of, keep. And so the idea there is, yeah, do what you were doing outside of the garden. Oh, you lost man. it. And, and, and uh, that's been abused, right? I mean, it's been yeah. it's been twisted, and and it, it fell apart just like the rest of the story fell apart. And and um, you look at at where things sit today. I, I, again, I, I think back to the example of the raccoons. It's out of balance. It's yeah. it's and and uh, you know what? The other thing that Nick and I do when we drive down the road, we we're telling Taylor earlier. We we like to oh, there's butterfly milkweed. There's common milkweed. There's there's a hoary vervain or something like that. You could do that with the number of invasive plants that have mm-hmm. filled those voids that have been left behind. Um, uh, I spent a lot of my time out in the fields with a hoe <laughs> and trying to to get rid of the invasive plants. And you look them up. I do. I spent a lot of time looking them up to see, okay, where do they come from? A lot of times they aren't even from 
our continent. You know, yeah. uh, w- when we when we get this idea of we can, again, we use that word that that uh, Taylor used to control everything, right? Oh, I want to travel a great distance. I can control that. Oh, I, I used to have this where I lived. I want it here now. I can control that. And there's been consequences that are, in a lot of ways, drastic. I mean, you can you, you don't even have to leave America to find plants that are so noxious and so yeah. toxic to, to humans that they can cause blindness. It, they, they were never here. You know, you think of like the giant hogweed that's rapidly spreading across the, the eastern part of our country. And, you know, it's just a matter of time before yeah. it, it makes its way to the Midwest. You know, you think, of, you think of things like that, even wild parsnip that we have around that's all over the place here in Iowa. You know, when we, when we use and abuse and try to control, it never works out. And that harmonious way of, of living as a player within that ecosystem instead of as the king over that e- ecosystem is just so much healthier in all ways. And, right? <laughs> oh, man, I... Uh, I don't know how much our listeners are going to like this, but it needs to be said. I uh, imagine, imagine the creator of the universe paints a painting and then he hands it to you and he says, Hey, quote unquote rule over this, take care of this. And then he comes back a thousand years later and you have drawn a totally different picture in crayon (laughs) and it is totally scratched and it looks terrible. And, what did, what did you do? I was, oh, I subdued it. Took real right. good care of it. Right. It's exactly right. how we want it to be now. Yeah. You know, that, that's how it feels sometimes. And uh, agriculture has a beautiful place. I mean, tell you. Harmony. You, right? Yeah, you've Harmony. described it so well. And I think, um, and I, I don't, you know, I don't think we have to, we have to take tractors out of the equation. I don't think we have to take all of these things out of the equation. But, and there, there can be advancements, but. We don't have to leave harmony behind in order to advance. It might be a little more inconvenient. It might take a little more money. It might take a little more time, a little more effort. Uh, but I, I don't think we have to separate agricultural advancement with, uh, with harmony, with balance, with uh, caring for nature. The problem is, the problem is this. Mm-hmm. There's some companies that found that if you take out harmony, it gets a lot more efficient and make a lot more money, uh, and, and, they're, and they're fighting for it really hard and, yeah you know yeah and really i think that's a good place for us to wrap up our conversation there you're talking about value right and and uh, i was telling nicholas on the way here taylor if if we could get one answer to a question from taylor during the interview would be this why should people value why shouldn't why shouldn't we just throw in the towel and say you know what this is society now it's it's mm. it's use it throw it away buy another one it's it's subduing it's controlling that's i like the name or the meaning behind the name omaha those who go against the current Mm -hmm. why is it worth it to go against the current for what the current model is for value why should we find value in bringing back that harmonious that more harmonious ecosystem that was once here i appreciate that uh question because it's probably one of the most important questions that we have today mm-hmm. and my, my answer is going to be a typical indigenous answer it goes back to our stories and cosmology mm-hmm. and prophecy and um, what first comes to mind is um, 
some of the words of the late principal chief of the Cherokee Nation, Wilma Mankiller. And she often talked about uh, the impact of uh, seven generations from now. And she was referring to our tribal ideology um, that pertains to leaders. Mm. That as leaders, uh, we have to consider the impact on the next seven generations. And so when you put that filter over, that's pretty harsh filter in a world that is um, comprised of immediate gratification mm -hmm. and yeah. um, economic maximization. Uh, that's a whole different mindset. And to go a bit further uh, with the meaning of the seventh generation to uh, Plains people, and again, that's kind of spanning both of my tribes, um, but you have the prophecy of the seventh uh, generation. And it was said uh, probably at the breaking of the uh, sacred hoop of the uh, Suian Confederacy at uh, Wounded Knee in mm. the late 1800s. And it was um, prophesied at that time um, by many indigenous peoples that it would be the beginning of a period of darkness for six generations. And Lord knows indigenous peoples have suffered mm -hmm. since then. Um, but, yeah. but the prophecy says with the coming of the markers, then there's going to be uh, the advent of the seventh generation. And that had to do in the prophecy, which originally comes, I believe, from the Dakota people, um, had to do with the origins of uh, how the ways of the Red Road came to indigenous peoples. And um, she is known as White Buffalo Calf Woman. And she's the one that brought the ways of the pipe and in their stories, they refer to uh, a couple of warriors coming across her, and she was carrying the pipes and singing the songs mm -hmm. that go with it. And she gifted them to us and uh, then said, here's the way you're supposed to live, and uh, someday I will return. And she turned into a white buffalo calf. Mm -hmm. And so the prophecy is that whenever there were four of them, born consecutively that would be the advent of the seventh generation first one was born in 2001 the seventh the fourth one was in 2007 and uh i along with many other indigenous peoples watched that saga unfold wow. and i just happened to be writing a scholarly paper with um, an indigenous sovereignty legal scholar who just happened to be dakota and i remember when the fourth one was born uh, I remember asking her, uh, so this means that it's the time of the seventh generation. And she nodded and said, yes. And, uh, then I got a little ahead of myself and I said, oh, does that mean that we're the seventh generation? I remember she pounded the table and said, no, you fool. She called me a fool, mm. rightfully so, and said, we're the sixth and the people of the fifth generation uh, tell us it's incumbent upon us that we're to be the teachers of the seventh uh, generation. And she chastised me at the time and chided me that I didn't know all my stories. And that was the beginnings of this journey with Sacred Seed 
was to find those origins and find the purpose mm. of our teachings and why that's so important. And she informed me that the seventh generation was so important because for us as indigenous peoples, they would be the leaders to lead our tribal nations to stand tall again. Yeah. Cultural sovereignty, legal sovereignty, physical sovereignty, mental, spiritual, emotional sovereignty. Mm. And uh, I believe that to be true. And that for the non-indigenous populations, that seventh generation, that whole generation born after 2007 uh, until they have their own children, that's the age of the seventh uh, generation. And that uh, they will be the generation is finally ready to get indigenous knowledge, which is why I do these conversations and this is my life's work is to help understand and, and to teach around it. And uh, what are those teachings? I believe it has to do with the sanctity of, of Mother Earth. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the main central tenet is that we are all related and we are children of the earth and she's our mother. And what I tell everyone uh, in this battle uh, to find harmony on, on the planet, especially with nature, uh, is that we need to love the earth as we would our own mothers. Yeah. Anything less than that, anything less than a religion is not enough. Mm. And it's going to take all of us together with our own belief systems to try and do our best to save mother earth. Mm. Mm. So I'll, uh, leave your, uh, listeners today with, those uh, profound show. thoughts that uh, don't come from me. Our teaching says that, you know, I didn't make these things up. I just was encouraged to listen and I share what I heard. Mm. Yeah. 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 There's so, so much, so much to take away from that. And, and absolutely it's going to take everybody to, to find that value again. And, and uh, it kind of goes back to what Nick was saying. We've, we've been distracted by other value other temporal value and um uh, you take away we, we talk about it all the time take away air quality water quality soil quality what are we left with and um certainly it wouldn't be loving our earth as as taylor just just stated if we if we don't have that value there well thank you so much taylor for coming yes. here and uh, truly i mean educating us you know sharing sharing a different perspective that that i've never gotten to enjoy learning from before and uh, i think it's really important for us to hear that and important for our listeners of course to hear that as well um if anyone wants to catch up with you you got a book coming out soon sounds like and, <laughs> at some point yes and, it's, uh, it's know, a long journey yeah yeah so uh what's the best way for people to follow along with that and sacred seed sure well I'm, i mean first of all there's www.sacredseed.org yep. which documents what we're doing and uh very blessed to have a great social media intern right now and and uh quick shout out to olivia because olivia i want you to put this podcast on our website and share it with <laughs> others well thank you um but uh you can also follow me on instagram taylor keen and then the number seven and uh was blessed to be on the Mediator podcast with Steve Ranella uh, last uh, July. That's where I first and, I was fixing uh, up I was fixing up my house. You know, it's it's kind of cool. It's a, a historical thing for me. My grandfather was born in the the bedroom of of that house and listening to you talk about your heritage while I'm 
here repairing mine, you know, working on the house. I was listening to that interview. Very powerful stuff. And ever since that experience, and they asked me the same thing at the end, and I told them my Instagram, and I don't remember how many new followers, 4,000, <laughs> 6,000, I can't keep up anymore. And so yeah. it's uh, it's been a new calling, and as I seek other individuals and organizations uh, with which to partner, it becomes important mm. in all this work. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time today and for all the wonderful work that you're doing with Hoxie. Absolutely. And uh, just like uh, Taylor talked about in his own yard, remember, uh, those of you listening in, you can transform your own yard. We have a goal of having 10,000 new backyards uh, with backyard pollinator mixes planted in them. Uh, Our pollinators are certainly uh, a, a group of species, we should say that have suffered mightily uh, as a result of uh, current and and really even now at this point historical land use practices that have been going on for a long time now. And uh, we need to start helping them out before it's too late. And so uh, help us reach that goal. You can find out how on the Prairie Farm website at theprairiefarm.com. And remember to follow along with Taylor and uh, find him at all the places where you can at the Sacred Seed website and, of course, on Instagram as well. And uh, remember, just like with Taylor, just like everyone else participating in their own conservation efforts, conservation happens one yard at a time.